All right. Hey, Rockbridge, my name is Matt, and just glad to be with you. Thank you for joining us at any of our six physical locations, those of you watching online. And also just remember, we're one church, multiple languages, multiple location, one mission, one vision. So we're back this week in our series called Ripple Effect. We had an incredible, incredible 20-year anniversary last weekend. If you, if you missed any of that, it is available online. But and, and maybe if you're new, we are navigating together through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, known as 1 Corinthians. And uh, this, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you're welcome to turn there, open up, turn your Bible on. Of course, you can always follow along with me on our screens. But because we, we did pause last week, I just want to remind us the overall thrust of this mess of this series of this book of the Bible. So what Paul is is adamant about is talking about the message of Christ crucified, what it is, what it has accomplished, what it unleashes. And, and what we've said is this event in history is like a gigantic boulder rock that you drop into a, a body of water and the ripple effects of the cross just go out and literally affect and impact everything. Paul alludes to this and talks about this ripple effect in, in 1 Corinthians 3, so we're just reviewing. But he says, everything is yours. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So because of this, when you place your faith in him and what he has done, we call that what he's done, the gospel, when you place your faith in Christ, we have an inheritance. We have something that's been achieved for us, right? We have everything is yours, our inheritance, our identity, our purpose, our hope, our very lives have been purchased and ransomed through the cross. Paul says it another way, slightly different, but the same basic truth in Ephesians 1.3, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. So the cross is an event in history. It's also an achievement of God where he gives us blessings that we are otherwise ineligible to receive. So let me say all that this way. The cross defines our relationship with God. We cannot have a right relationship with God without the cross. But the cross also releases the blessing of that relationship to us, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of a sure identity, the blessing of hope, of joy, of peace, the, the blessing of who, we, who God created us and died for us to become. So where we're going today is hinges upon this premise right here. We do not want to be receiving God's minimum. We want to be enjoying His maximum. So we, we don't want just some of the benefits of the cross and the relationship that it has made possible for us to have with God. We want to maximize that. And so part of the reason in Paul's pastoral heart that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church at 1 Corinthians is he wants them to live at the maximum of what God has done and provided through the cross, not the minimum. That is, there's not a single person listening, watching me right now that that's not also true for. God wants you to have the maximum. When we say at Rockbridge Community Church that our vision, our mission is to glorify God by connecting people from all walks of life to life in Christ, 
Life in Christ is maximum. Life in Christ is not avoiding hell. Life in Christ is not coming to church one hour a week. Life in Christ is not keeping a few thou shalts and thou shalt nots. Life in Christ is as we are intended to live and as God has died for us to receive. And so that's all in view here. Now, Hold those thoughts, and then let me share with you what we're doing in 1 Corinthians 5 is a way to get to this maximum, is a way to ensure we are not falling to the minimum, but we are receiving and enjoying the maximum. So hold that thought, and let me ask you a couple of questions, all right? If an athlete and a team is going to perform at the maximum level, they need a coach. We would all agree with that. Those of us who are sports fans, all of that, you know, we would all agree with that. A student is never going to achieve their maximum potential without a teacher. We would all agree with that in most instances, in most cases, for most people. A sick person is never going to achieve health again, (coughs) most likely, without a doctor. Or maximum health, we have to have some kind of doctor. If we are going to work out and achieve maximum benefits in exercise, studies show, maybe your experience shows you either need an instructor or some kind of partner or some kind of of someone that's helping push you past the level you think you can go to get to the maximum time or the maximum reps or just so you don't even miss your three-day-a-week routine. So we would all agree with that concept, right? So what we're saying is maximum is achieved with an external source of discipline. That to to achieve, to receive the maximum benefits, the maximum blessing, the maximum potential, there's an external source of discipline required. Now, when I say discipline, that word may have negative connotations, but it includes all of the following, accountability, wisdom, encouragement, and then when necessary, correction. Now, here's the challenge with this. You and I, as fallen people, we have a love-hate relationship with discipline. On one hand, self-discipline is like a virtue in our society. Right? Man, that person's so disciplined. Man, they've worked so hard. But external discipline, we get a little wary of, right? Because we want to be in control. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We sort of want to retain veto power. Nobody can tell me how to live. Nobody can tell me what to do. I want to be in charge of my life. So we like self-discipline, but we don't like external discipline, yet we all just agree that we need some form of external discipline to maximize our potential in terms of academics or athletics or health or or, or working out or whatever the case may be. This is in view, and the role of external discipline is in view when Paul writes this section of 1 Corinthians. He does not want them to miss the maximum that the cross releases and makes possible, but to receive the maximum, and so external discipline comes into play. We join the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here we go. It is actually reported, so somehow Paul gets word, that there is sexual immorality among you, and it's the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, so a guy sleeping with his stepmother. That's gross, it's incestuous, it's revolting, and all of those kind of things. And and so what Paul is saying is there's a sin that is well-known, it's out in view, it's out in public, it's not even, I mean, even the, the Roman sexual ethic, which is pretty out there, even in the Roman Empire, they don't even like that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that, it's kind of universally agreed, an incestuous relationship 
uh, a son with a stepmother is wrong, and yet it's going on inside the church at Corinth. As I say all the time, there's no perfect church, not even in the first century, right? As we say all the time, we're, we're all one decision away from stupid. As we say all the time, you know, ministry and life is messy, right? So this is a mess, okay? But Paul, Paul says there's something else going on that's problematic, and you are arrogant Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So the, the interesting thing is this, these pronouns, you, your, and you, they're, they're plural. So now he's not just talking about the guy who's doing this with his stepmother. He's talking about the church because the church is arrogant. They think maybe there's nothing wrong with it. They think maybe, hey, man, God will just forget. I, I don't, we don't really know exactly the arrogance and how it's manifesting, but they're tolerating this public sin, this sin that's out important. And Paul, so Paul, he's not only upset that this guy that claims to be a Christian is doing this, and he says you should remove them from your congregation, but he's also upset that their response is one of arrogance or ignorance and not one of grief and sorrow and, and repentance. So, so the issues that start to emerge are this. We have a revolting sexual sin that's publicly known and being publicly tolerated by the church at Corinth. And we have a dereliction of duty by the church because the church is supposed to be that external source of discipline amongst its membership to help the church and to help individuals in the church maximize life in Christ. We, we said we need external sources of discipline, right? If our sports team's going to be better, they need a great coach. If our students are going to be better, they have to have a good principal. So the external source of discipline is amongst the church. And, and, and so, yeah, so there's pushback, right? There's pushback because one, we don't like external forms of discipline unless it's on our terms. And, and secondly, there's all kinds of questions that get raised about, you know, well, won't God just forgive? And, and what we're not supposed to judge. And, 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 you know, nobody's perfect. Doesn't God understand that? And so we got to put all that on the table today and submit it to the biblical truth and the biblical revelation. Now, Paul continues and, and, and gives us, a, a, unveils a third issue that he has with this whole situation. He continues, verse 3, even though I'm absent in the body, so Paul is not physically present, I am present in, the sp in spirit because he cares about the church. He cares about Corinth. He planted it, and that's the story we have in Exodus 18. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. So for all of the folks who say, who are you to judge? You are saying something. If you're a Christ follower and you say, who are you to judge? To another Christ follower, you are not biblical. That's not biblical. Okay, so we got to just unlearn something that maybe we've used to keep people from challenging us on some things. Or we got to unlearn something that's kept us from questioning other believers about some questionable things in their lives. Because here's Paul saying, hey, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing this thing. And so he goes on, he says, when you are assembled, so when the church comes together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what unifies us and unites us, Christ crucified, the gospel, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul has in mind is what he's been talking about this whole letter, that we preach Christ crucified. He is the power and the wisdom of God. So when the church assembles together, 
Christ crucified, Christ as wisdom, Christ as power, that's got to be in play, that this has accomplished something, that this releases something into our lives when we place place our faith in this man, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, that this ripple effect, that this affects everything. And so the third issue that Paul has is that the achievement of the cross at Corinth is being minimized, therefore the blessings released by the cross will be and are being unrealized. So so you got to hear there's a concern here for the church. Yes, they're tolerating sin. Yes, this sin is is public. It's known. It's revolting. It's not even something non-believers and pagans would do. And the power of the cross is being blocked or the, the blessings of the cross are being minimized and thus unrealized. And so that bothers Paul and that concerns Paul. And, and so you see that as he moves forward and he, and he shares even more of, of what's going on because he, he's going to clarify some things. So let's, let's think about it this way. When we think about grace... Uh, a, a lot of times, especially like in church circles, amazing grace and all that house, we, we think of grace as forgiving grace, that God forgives us of our sins, okay? Paul has a, has a more comprehensive view of grace, which, which he's hoping we would adopt as well, that grace not only enables us to be forgiven, but grace also enables us to be reconciled and restored into a relationship with God. So it's not, oh, I'm forgiven, I'll see you later, God, when I need you. It's I'm forgiven, and because I'm forgiven, I can draw near to you in relationship of intimacy and enjoyment of the cross, of Jesus. But there's also delivering grace, that grace delivers us from sin, that grace delivers us not only from the penalty of sin, but the presence and the power of sin, and that grace and receiving grace, we, we, we daily need the grace of God. If you remember part one, Paul says, grace to you, verse three, first three verses, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wants the Corinthian church to know and operate in all, in all facets or all aspects of God's grace. Not minimal grace, maximum effects of grace. And so here's what we have to keep in mind because we need to meet ourselves in the text, right? We need to understand this and, and why God, the Holy Spirit, put this book in the Bible, has kept it for us, and why we're studying it 2,000 years later. Every Christ follower is always right in the middle of their own sanctification. Sanctification is this progressive overtime process where we, we sin less and less, and we look more and more like Jesus in terms of our character and our attitude and our priorities and our agenda. Everybody is always in the middle of this. So this means there's not a single person in the room with you right now, in your life, when you look at yourself in the mirror, everybody, everybody is battling the sin that lives within them. Everybody. And what Paul is pushing the church to do is to assume its role as that source of discipline and to help the church and the individual members of the church win the battle and move forward in their sanctification. So the notion, again, of a Christian without a church family, completely foreign to the Bible. 
the notion of a lone ranger, I can do it myself, I can fight sin on my own, I can maximize God's will in my life on my own, absolutely unbiblical. Now, so keep that in mind because Paul's going to say something next that, again, is going to sound harsh, but we got to see it for what it is. So Paul tells the church, this is how this needs to be handled. He says, we're going to hand that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So if he is, because what's going on is this is not a one-time thing. It's not a bad mistake on Friday night. This is a tolerated, repeated sin practice of this man with his stepmother in the church. Church knows about it. The church is doing nothing about it. The person's not repentant. The person's not trying to fight the sin. The person is completely giving themselves over to the sin and kind of sort of, it sounds like, doesn't even think there's anything wrong with it. So Paul says, we're going to hand this person over to Satan. And other places, Paul talks about himself getting a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. So crazy Satan can serve God's purposes. Satan does serve God's purposes for the destruction of the flesh. The flesh is that part of the us where sin comes from. It's in our nature. And, and, and so Paul says, hey, we, we cannot have anything to do with this person. We're going to turn him over to the world. We're going to get him out of the church. He's not taking the Lord's Supper. We're not even, at this point, we're quite, probably questioning whether he's a, really a Christ follower or not. And, and, and maybe... Through, through the world's ways, he will come to his senses and he will have this aha moment and recognize he's not living in accordance with God's will. The prodigal son who left the father and ends up, you know, kind of eating what's left over in the pig's trough, Luke 15, he comes to his senses. It's like, man, I'm coming back to father, coming back to my dad. Jonah's in the boat and all the sailors are, are you know, trying to save the boat. And Jonah's like, you got to throw me overboard. And they're like, no, we're not going to throw you overboard. He's like, you got to throw me overboard. And they throw him overboard and the sea gets calm. And God provides a supernatural form of grace to protect Jonah from drowning, which happens to be the big whale, right? And, and, and that discipline brings Jonah to his senses. And he, he goes and does what God called him to do. So all of this is not punitive. There's a design, a design based on love. That's in Paul's mind. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we're not throwing him out, so to speak, to punish him. We're not throwing him out just to get rid of him. Our goal for him is salvation. Our goal for him is sanctification. Our goal for him is this part of his flesh would become less prevalent, less powerful, less persistent in his life. So it's external discipline from the church to a member of the church for the purposes of salvation and or sanctification. So here's some things that just start jumping out at us. The seriousness of the discipline matches the seriousness of the sin. This passage is not saying every time there's sin in the church, you got to assemble together and kick people out of the church. It's not saying that. The seriousness is it's known, it's public, it's tolerated, it's not even something unbelievers would engage in. It's that far out of bounds of, of ethics in the first century, and, and so we're going to be as serious with our discipline as the sin's manifestations are serious. Now, here's the second thing. You can't miss this, because I know the pushback is, 
yeah, but I, I thought we were supposed to forgive, and I thought we were supposed to, you know, uh, judge not. And I said, hey, you got to hold on to that and, and, and submit that to the, the authority of Scripture. So the second, point, the second implication is very, very important. The goal of the discipline matches the goal of the gospel. What's the goal of the gospel? Salvation, forgiveness, right relationship with God. The goal of the discipline is not excommunication, never want anything to do with you again. The goal of the discipline is not kick you to the curb, see you later, right? The goal of the discipline is the goal of the gospel, that God is trying to bring us back to him. He does that through the gospel, right? And, and so the goal of the discipline is exactly the same goals. It's restoration. It's reconciliation. It's come to our senses. It's destroy the part of us that wants to take the best that God has for us away, which is our flesh. Now, there's some other implications that we got to wrestle with. And here, this is going to challenge all of us, especially us, you know, Americans, right? Fighting sin and practicing repentance are corporate responsibilities. So hear me, it's not just individuals fighting their sin on their own. It's we fight sin and we promote or practice repentance together. That's a church-wide responsibility. That practically means if I'm in like a Bible study or a small group, I'm helping my brothers and sisters fight their sin. They're helping me fight my sin temptations and my sin battles. That, that practically means this whole notion that, you know, everything between me and God and what's going on in my life is private, none of your business, is not biblical. It's a corporate responsibility. Just like you wouldn't expect your son to come home and talk about their calculus class and say, man, I don't need my teacher. I just need them to get out of my I got this. I can figure this out on my own. You'd be like, you crazy? Right? If, you're, if your child plays a sport and they come home like, man, I'm tired of listening to the coach. We don't even need a coach. We don't even need anybody there at practice telling us what to do. We don't need anybody strategizing for our game plan. You would say to your kids, you're crazy. So if you're a Christian saying, man, I don't need anybody in my business. I don't need anybody helping me with my, with my deal and my issues. And my, you, Paul would be like, you crazy. That's not the way God set it up. It's not wise. It's not biblical. And so we need to today in 2022 ask ourselves this question. Is my relationship with Rockbridge or, any, or another local church one where I can receive discipline? Is, is, is my relationship with my local church one where I can receive discipline? Not, not just kick you out discipline like the, the extreme case because of this very, very serious unique set of circumstances, but is somebody going to challenge me? Is somebody going to attempt to correct me or encourage me as I'm seeking to fight a sin tempt or a besetting sin or an addiction or, what, or a habit or a heart, whatever? And, and so we got to ask ourselves this question. And I think this passage right here is one of the clearest evidences for the fact that we need to be in some type of membership process where we are spiritually known by other people. This is part of the reason why we are revamping our membership process. It's launching this fall. It's called All In. More information on our website, more information from our, 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 each of our individual respective campuses. But we're just saying, hey, we see biblically where we need to be a part of a fellowship where certain things are possible and available. And 1 Corinthians 5, one of those certain things is that we are receiving and, and, and able to experience church discipline to help us in our own sanctification. Now, I, I want to just talk about how Rockbridge practices discipline. 
We don't always get it right, but I think there's two categories. The first is formative discipline, which is often preventative discipline. Just by being in church every week and being in Bible study with other people, hearing the Word of God, doing time with God, in prayer, whatever, hearing messages from the Word of God, that, that, that shapes us. And there's a lot of things that maybe you get warned about. A lot of things, you know, get nipped in the bud. So before it becomes big and out of control, it's dealt with very, very small. Maybe just you and the Lord or you and your family or just you and your small group or you and your D group. And so that's formative discipline. We also have a, a, a process that's based on Matthew 18 for corrective discipline. And that's where we have to actually kind of start talking to each other more directly about sin that we're seeing in each other's lives. Now, before we get there, I think there's a couple of questions that we always have to ask. Is the matter worth a formal corrective process? A lot of things are like, hey, man, I think you messed up. I think you slipped up, whatever. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm right. You're right. And so no big deal. Let's move on, right? And, and so we got to, you know, ask ourselves that. If we're not sure, that's why we have elders. That's why we have pastors. That's why we have small group leaders uh, and things of that nature. The second question, I mean, is the matter substantiated? We're not just going to go on a gossip or on a, on a whim or on a rumor. Does it actually seem legit? And the third question, is the matter criminal? That, you know, if it's criminal, we're under authority uh, and we got to involve maybe the police. And so sometimes the church, and there's stuff in the news right now, I won't go into that, where churches haven't seemed to address matters that actually are crossing into the criminal territory, okay? And, and so we got to ask those questions. But once we realize that some form of corrective discipline has to be done, then we go to Matthew 18. This frames it up for us. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have probably most likely a one-on-one -on -one conversation or it's as small as possible. If it's two or three people engaged in this or involved in this, we're going to try to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And, and, at the, and in that conversation, we're first seeking truth. We're not just slinging accusations. We're seeing truth. And is repentance actually needed? If repentance is needed and the repentance is obtained, the person is sorry, not sorry they got caught, sorry they grieved God, we want to move in a new direction, we're done. Praise the Lord. That's the goal of the gospel. However, if repentance is needed and not given, then we have to start involving leadership. And that, and that could be small group leader. It could be a local campus elder, campus pastor, etc. And the same thing. Did we get, if we get to repentance because it's needed, well, we're done. We move on. Praise the Lord. Repentance is always celebrated in Scripture, right? And, and, and then we may have to go and actually get involved with the spiritual authority the final, so to speak, spiritual, or the final human spiritual authority, get our pastors and elders involved. And again, if we get to repentance, we're done. Praise the Lord. We are so excited, right? But if not, then we have to take steps to protect the church, and Paul's going to talk about that in the next section in 1 Corinthians 5, and to promote repentance. So what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 5 is basically it has so far it has gone on so long with no repentance, with no corrective action, and Paul is like, we've got to protect the witness of the church, and we've got to do something, kind of a final last effort to promote repentance, which is we're going to exclude them from the Lord's Supper, exclude them from fellowship with the church, hand them over to the domain of Satan, which is to say out in the world, and maybe the natural consequences of sin will wake them up and they'll fight the sin and then we'll bring them back into the fellowship, okay? So all of that 
is how we at Rockbridge would tend to, when we do it the right way, practice biblical church discipline. We don't always do it. We don't always get it right. We're, we're not perfect, but this is our, this is our process. Now, what Paul's going to do now is add another reason why external discipline has to be a vital part of every local congregation, because at some point we have to protect the church. And here's what he says. He says this. Oh, excuse me, but let me just, last point. The goal is always going to be reconciliation, restoration. Always reconciliation, restoration. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Doesn't say perfection and truth. We are sincere. We're committed. We're steadfast on the goal of being disciples of Jesus, representing Him, living for His glory, enjoying the full blessings that He's achieved for us on the cross and wants to give to us through the fullness of His grace, and we're operating by truth. All He's saying here is this. Listen, if you leave this alone, it's like a small virus can infect my whole body. One bad grade in one class affects my whole GPA. Or let me say it this way. It, we have to deal with this before it gets out of control. So let me, let me make this statement that I heard from a pastor that I just have a lot of respect for, been in some leadership groups with him over the years, that, and his name's Larry Osborne. We need to distinguish between a struggling sheep and an infectious one. A struggling sheep is pretty much all of us who would say, hey, I've got some sins that show up in my life from time to time or that I've battled over time. And, and, and I'm, I'm fighting them, and I'm inviting my friends or my church family. Uh, I'm inviting you to help me fight these sins as well. That's a struggling sheep, you know? Uh, an infectious sheep is a sheep that's like, I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to keep doing. Uh, I don't care. God is just going to forgive me. Or, hey, there's really no big deal. Or, you know, oh, I prayed that prayer back when I was eight years old. I am good, and I'll keep doing what I'm going to do, which is keep living in sin. So we got to distinguish between that, okay? So 1 Corinthians 5, Paul has reached the conclusion, this is not a struggling sheep. They're not fighting sin. This is an infectious sheep. And if it's left there, it's going to potentially corrupt the entire body. Then one last thing that Paul brings up, because this starts to raise the question, well, how do we relate to the world? Because the world has sinners in it. The world has people in it who, who don't really adhere to Christian values or don't really, they're not interested in Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about this. And here's what he says. He goes, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul, there's actually a third letter that we don't have, but Paul references it here. And he goes, I did not mean the immoral people of the world, this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. So Paul is saying, you need to be around non-Christians who do non-Christian things. That's how you're salt and light. That's how you can show them Christ crucified. That's how you can show them, demonstrate, declare to them the good news, the gospel, and how much Jesus loves them because of what he did for them on the cross. But he said, I actually wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, claims to be a Christian, and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. Probably eat in a way that you could be 
lumped in with them. That might be the Lord's Supper. It might be some type of fellowship. Different commentators have different views on that. But what Paul is saying is, hey, look, if someone is claiming to be a Christ follower and they are living in known sin, not fighting the sin, not inviting corporate accountability or corporate encouragement or, or any other thing, then, then you can't have anything to do with them. That's what he's saying. And then here's where he blows up so many excuses. He says, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? He goes, I'm not judging people outside of the church. I'm not judging non-Christians. Don't you judge those who don't you judge those who are inside? God will judge outsiders, remove the evil person from among you. So he's saying, we judge each other to help each other look more like Jesus. So, so here, here's what he's reminding the church of. You got to remain in the world. You are still to be sharing the gospel. You're still to be on mission, living sent, doing good things, right? But don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Expect Christians to act like Christians. And, and probably what we've done in America is we've got that wrong, right? We look outside the world and we get mad at all these people who aren't even Christians when maybe we ought to look inside our small group, inside our own families, inside the church and say, hey, well, let's help each other fight these sins so, each, so together we look more like Jesus and that makes us more compelling and more irresistible to a world in need of Jesus. So here's how we want to close. I just want us to all look at this in a posture of prayer. I just want to go ahead and invite us, all of our campuses, to look at this in a posture of prayer. And I'm going to invite us all to potentially take one of three or two of three or three of three steps. And then we're going to close in a song at all our locations called Nothing Else. And it's basically saying, there's nothing else I want. I just want you, Jesus. And, and, and listen, you don't have to stand and sing. You can sit the areas in front of the stage, kind of what Christians sometimes call the altars of the church. You can come forward because I think we all need to read 1 Corinthians 5 with the intentions that the Holy Spirit has behind even authoring 1 Corinthians 5, which is to bring us to a point of taking sin as seriously as God takes sin when under, and understanding the fullness of the cross is greater than just forgiveness. It's greater than just heaven. It's to give us power over sin. So here's three possible steps. And then listen, we just are inviting all of us to respond to God today. Martin Luther, who helped author the Protestant Reformation, he said, listen, and I want you to hear me. All of life as a Christian is one of repentance. So we're all, we never graduate from the need to come back here, put our sins here, receive grace here. We preach Christ crucified. So first is let's just recognize in faith the power of the cross. Some of you have, may never have done this before, and today might be your day to become a Christ follower. The cross pardons us from all sin, but the cross is also power over sin. When you realize that sin did this and love of, the love of God did this, that begins to help us say no to the things in our lives that put Jesus on the cross. And when we understand that what we've done put Jesus on the cross, but what he has done gives us pardon from what we have done, 
We love him even more, and we fight sin even harder. Some of you today, I invite you to come and put your faith in Jesus Christ for the first time. Make him your Lord, your King, your Savior. Choose to follow him as best you know how right now, and we'll walk with you forward in baptism, forward in church membership, forward in sanctification, forward in the best life, which is life in Christ. Secondly, I just think all of us need to consider biblical church membership, not Bible Belt church membership, not denominational church membership, but biblical church membership where we are able to give and receive this external source of discipline, which is so necessary for our growth and so necessary to maximize the benefits of the cross. I just want to encourage you, sign up for All In if you haven't. We're inviting all current members to go back through the membership process, not requiring you, but to go back through and participate in this new process called All In, and we believe it might even reinvigorate and help your faith journey as well. And then the third one is this. Would you deal seriously with any known sin in your life right now? It may just be between you and God, and it may not even need to get known beyond that. In fact, most, most of the time that's the case, but would you be willing right now, come down and pray, sit where you are and pray, listen to the words of these songs, but let's all of us deal seriously with known sin. For some of you, this means you got to go have a, conference, a conversation with someone because you know how they're living, and you love them too much to let them go that way. For others of us, others of you, it's in our own lives where we just need to confess and repent. But all of us, let's come back to where it all begins, where it's all based, where it's all founded. Let's come back to the cross and seek God. Nothing else, Jesus. Nothing else but you. Anything in the way, we want to bring to you and leave it on the cross. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for people that they might come to faith in Christ right now. I pray for all of us that we would see sin for what it is right now. God, if there's any sin in us that might be secret, unknown, or, 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 or God, maybe it's not even you know, out in public, but God, we just need to give it to you. I pray you would find confession and repentant hearts right now. God, some of us already know we've got to have a conversation because we love people too much not to. Give us that courage, that clarity. God, for all of us, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you don't want us living at the minimum, but you want us to receive the maximum. Help us see church as one of the great gifts in your plan to bless, to sanctify, and to grow your people to look more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.